Welcome to Debased, a show about the current state of money with Jeff Dyson. Our topic today is the BRIC currency proposal. I know a lot of you who follow FinTwit, who follow financial news, uh, who think about monetary policy have been following this uh, story. It's a, it's a very interesting story. It may well be hype. It may well be real. I'll, full disclosure, I'm sure before the hour's over, I will expose myself as someone who's kind of on the hype side. I think it's more hype, uh, more smoke than fire. But anyway, we got some great guests. We have a, a friend of mine, Dr. Thorsten Pollitt. He's the chief economist at uh, Degasa in Frankfurt in Germany. So I see he's joined us. We've got a friend of mine, E.J. Antoni, who's uh, part of the great econ team at Heritage. And of course, we've got David Waugh, my buddy from the CoinBits app, who generally joins us on Fridays as well. So I want to get to Thorsten because I know he's been interviewed about this in, uh, in the German press, for example. But let me just throw out, as I normally do, just a few minutes spiel uh, framing the issue. So we've heard for many, many years that, you know, that U.S. dollar is the world's reserve currency and that uh, other countries around the world sure would like to unseat it, uh, its status as such, as kind of a geopolitical angle. Um, of course, people on this call know that really since the, at least the Bretton Woods Agreement in 1944, and especially perhaps accelerated since the end of that agreement or the de facto end of it under the Nixon administration in 1971, the United States dollar has enjoyed a status that perhaps it has not earned. In other words, a political status rather than a truly economic status. And of course, the French called this our exorbitant privilege. Uh, a French finance minister named uh, Gestang. And so the reason becomes why, you know, what's, what's the privilege here? Well, in effect, arguably the dollar's reserve status over all these years has allowed America to uh, export inflation. And, and by doing so, it's allowed us as Americans, those of us on the call who are Americans, to, to enjoy this privilege and, and potentially feel a lot wealthier than we really are in terms of the actual productivity of U.S. businesses and firms. And so by creating this world's reserve currency status for the U.S. dollar, that imposed a lot of obligations on the rest of the world because not only national governments and national central banks, but also companies and individuals around the world uh, in large part needed and still need U.S. dollars to engage in trade. They often need to borrow in U.S. dollar denomination, uh, often to settle international transactions they need dollars often to buy oil. They need dollars. So the world is awash in dollars. And the idea that the rest of the world might not be so thrilled with this privilege that we enjoy um, is, is undoubtedly true. And some of the countries among the BRICS nation undoubtedly feel this acutely. However, we have to remember that the rest of the world is also has an interest in the dollar because maybe maybe half of all uh, U.S. currency in existence is held outside the United States. So if the dollar were to experience a crash or a rapid decline in value, those foreigners would be hurt as well. Maybe a third of all U.S. Treasury debt is held by foreigners, somewhere along, uh, somewhere along the lines of one third, 33 percent. So again, uh, if those treasuries uh, decline in value, it won't just be us that will be hurt by this. 
So what we know is that all these decades of the world's reserve currency status have enabled us to perhaps live beyond our means. But it's also, I, I would argue, hurt the U.S. and it's hurt Americans in that, uh, like an alcoholic that you continue uh, to slide a drink across the bar to, you know, it has allowed us to live beyond our means at the governmental level as well. And that has resulted in things that I would argue are very bad and very harmful for the United States, like wars of choice, for example, which cost trillions of dollars beyond what we raise in taxes. Of course, an enormous entitlement uh, regime, especially Social Security and Medicare, and when we look at the rapid aging of the U.S. population, where the over 65s are set to double folks by 2050, uh, it has been estimated by an economist named Lawrence Kotlikoff that the, that, the, uh, that the expected future tax revenue versus the expected future obligations to people under Social Security and Medicare, there's maybe a $200 trillion gap between that. So entitlements are a real problem for America. And then beyond entitlements, which are welfare for middle-class old people, uh, there's regular welfareism. So we've had welfare and warfare as a result, in part, of our ability uh, to spend in, with deficits, uh, to sell lots of treasury debt, and know that there will always be ready buyers for that treasury debt, even if it's the Fed, uh, all around the world. So again, the United States benefits, but the rest of the world, which might like to see this change, they also hold dollars, they also hold treasuries and their government and their central banks and their investment funds and at the individual level. And I would like to add, as I think an important point, uh, you know, countries don't trade. Countries don't have interests per se. Uh, individuals trade. Businesses trade. But when I say countries, what I really mean is the political class. Politicians have interests. And it may well be in the interests of uh, certain politicians in, in Brazil or Russia or India or China and that's what the BRICS acronym stands for, uh, to see the U.S. dollar dethroned. So what we've heard, of course, uh, along with these, the five countries I mentioned, there's also about 19 other countries who are now signed up as BRICS members, including some you know, reasonably uh, stable Middle Eastern countries. Uh, what we've heard is that, of course, in August at the uh, meeting of the BRICS nation, which is BRICS uh, nations group, which is going to take place in South Africa, that there may be a proposal to create a, a gold-backed currency of some kind amongst the BRICS nations. Now, this is a little strange because it was the Russian embassy in Kenya, of all places, sort of floated this news story, and a lot of different outlets picked it up. The Indians, by the way, have denied this. Uh, so it's not so clear. Uh, this didn't come out of the Kremlin itself. This certainly didn't come out of the CCP in China. But there's been a lot of talk about it for years. And there's a little added extra intrigue because presumably the leaders of those five BRICS nations would attend this conference in South Africa. However, South African government is a signatory to the ICC, the Inter International Criminal Court uh, Agreement. And the ICC has what is, in effect, a criminal warrant out for one Vladimir Putin. So in theory, uh, if the South African government were to permit, permit this, and if Putin were to actually attend in August, there could be a, an international incident or a showdown of some kind. So I don't know if that's going to happen. I don't know if he will attend. I don't know if the South Africans would allow it to attend, would, would allow it to happen. Uh, some people have said, well, they should move it to China because China is not part of the ICC. Uh, so 
there's some interesting background here, and uh, some, some people, including Dr. Pollitt, have, have written about this. Uh, there's a gentleman named Alistair McLeod at goldmoney.com who's written a, a really substantive article on how all of this might work, and he thinks it is not hype. So I'll just throw this out uh, at goldmoney.com. The name of the article is uh, The Bell Tolls for Fiat by Alistair McLeod, just written a couple of days ago. On the other side of it, our friend Mish Shedlock, I think some of you probably follow him. He's got a website called Mish Talk, and he has a, an article called More Gold-Backed Brick Currency Silliness on Dethroning the Dollar. So uh, I want to throw this out now to our speakers, but I'll just uh, my last comment will be there's sort of three elements to this this notion. Okay, first of all is the actual mechanics. What would it take to implement or to even begin to implement or think about a gold-backed currency? That's the first idea. The second is the economics of it. Uh, is there demand? Would money flow into this idea? Would trade actually occur? Uh, is there an economic market for all of this? And then the last uh, point is, of course, the geopolitics. This, is, this would almost be viewed as uh, an, I, I, maybe I shouldn't say an act of war, but it would certainly be viewed as an act of hostility uh, towards the United States government and our dollar supremacy. So these are all very, very important points to consider. So let's start. Let's uh, let's ask EJ Antoni from Heritage. Well, thank you, Jeff. I, I think one of the things that's important to remember here is the speed at which this kind of thing occurs. I, I mean, specifically de-dollarization. Uh, and the reason I, I, I want to start off with this is because, you know, for literally decades now, many conservatives, especially fiscal conservatives, have been uh, saying that we are on the precipice in terms of runaway government spending and financial collapse here in the United States, et cetera. You know, and while they're right about the trajectory, they've been completely wrong about the magnitude. And by being hyperbolic and saying things like, oh, we only have a year or two until things go south, or once we hit this percent of debt to GDP, things are going to go south, etc. And so every time those those that hyperbolic messaging is incorrect, what happens is more and more people start to ignore the warning signs and more and more people think, oh, this is fine. This is sustainable. No big deal. Uh, I, I think we've seen the exact same thing with de-dollarization, except probably to an even greater extent because it's been going on for so long. I don't just mean de-dollarization has been going on for so long, but all of the things that are going to cause de-dollarization have literally been going on for decades. And now when you have uh, an administration which, frankly, has no respect for the dollar, either at home or abroad, they are, let's take those two things, at home, they're devaluing the dollar at an astonishing pace, right? We, we've heard time and time again, fastest pace in 40 years. But also, if you look at the trend of the consumer price index over the last year, it's been rising very steadily at an annualized rate of 3%, which is different from the annual rate of 3%. The annual rate is just the change over the last year. But the annualized rate would be, if you look at individual months over the last year or last 13 months, you see it's astonishing how steadily prices have been rising. What I'm trying to get at here is that 3% inflation is the new normal. There is no indication that things are going back down to 2%. We have not been trending towards 2%. We have been trending towards 3 and we've arrived. And again, there's no indication we're going lower. 
So that's the mess at home. What about abroad? We have taken the unprecedented step of seizing dollars that do not belong to us. Uh, We have taken them from the rightful owners. We are threatening to now gift them to other third parties uh, to whom they do not belong. And now you also have a lot of countries around the world who uh, disagree with the Biden administration on a variety of issues, whether it's global warming and fossil fuels, uh, whether it's abortion, whether it's laws related to sexual behavior, whatever the case may be. You have a lot of countries right now scared that the Biden administration is going to take similar steps uh, and seize their own uh, dollar reserves, for example. What all of this does is it makes people painfully aware that the dollar no longer had no longer holds its sacred place in monetary policy, and it, it has become a political weapon. And as such, uh, it is subject to forces that are are, are essentially at odds with the monetary system. Uh, you know, and and this is where things like gold, like Bitcoin, really stand out because. I, I don't care whose image is stamped on a gold coin, right? And I don't care uh, in what country a particular Bitcoin was mined. The fact is that these things are universal and they are entirely apolitical and they have no loyalties. Traits which are, which are highly advantageous, again, for, for a monetary system. And so as people begin to reevaluate the dollar as the reserve currency status, uh, you see moves like we're seeing today where countries uh, are beginning to, to move away from using the dollar for settling international transactions. They're beginning to use their own currencies. And all of this is happening right now very, very slowly. And it will probably continue to go slowly for a while, but eventually it does pick up steam. And when it does, it happens incredibly quickly because once everyone realize it's like a bank run. Once everyone realize the jig, realizes the jig is up, everyone rushes for the exits at once. And there's not enough left to pay everyone, just like in a bank run, right? So that's where you get to your hyperinflation scenario. And as everyone is rushing for the exits, most people don't make it out of the building. Most people either get trampled or they're stuck when it collapses. But EJ, here's the thing. You know, if you're China, for example, China has unbelievable amounts of dollars that which it obtains by selling us cheap stuff at Walmart. Uh, China has lots of treasuries. Um, you know, it's, it's like a game of musical chairs. If the dollar were to plummet expeditiously, then China itself would be harmed. So it, in other words, um, th- this is what, what classical liberals have always argued is one of the great things about trade, is it actually reduces friction between countries and decreases the likelihood of war between them because uh, goods and services are crossing borders and that, you know, we need China and, and China needs us. So I, I wonder what the calculation would be, uh, you, know, you know, among CCP leaders who clearly don't like us and view us as an adversary. But nonetheless, I mean, if, if you look at the amount of Chinese imports into the U.S., they're kind of in bed with us. To a certain extent, yes. But, you know, as much as there's a lot of talk today in the United States about decoupling, you have to wonder what is going on behind closed doors in China and if they're having similar conversations. Because China uh, is reversing what they were doing 20 years ago, for example, when they couldn't get enough U.S. debt and were gobbling up every treasury they could. They're doing the opposite now. They have been liquidating their position, not only uh, by allowing the, the runoff of, of securities, in other words, as 
as they mature, those securities are not being replaced, but they have been actively selling as well. And they're only a few years away from completely eliminating their entire position of U.S. treasuries. So I'm not sure that they're nearly as closely tied to us uh, as they were in years past. But, But to your point, Jeff, you know, we really are truly moving in or, or re- returning, I guess, to the age of beggar thy neighbor economics, where instead of free trade, instead of this idea that, look, you and I are both better off if we specialize in something and trade with one another for what we need. And that reduces the chances that we'll ever fight against one another because we become interdependent. You know, a lot of that is is going away. And, and I don't think actually it has anything to do with nationalism. Nationalism, uh, I, I think, gets the 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 bulk of the blame but i don't think it has anything to do with that at all well i don't know if anybody caught earlier today uh tucker carlson interviewing some of these presidential candidates and he had mike pence on and and, you know the bellicosity that uh, pence has for china he's talking about how they're building an aircraft carrier every day and you know or every month or something he's like well to go where are they going to fly it uh into the gulf of mexico and and uh put it off off the shore of Galveston. No, that's what we do in the South China Sea. So it's interesting that, you know, someone like Pence, we talk about why would the Chinese ever do that? Well, because they hear complete psychopath, psychopathic morons like Mike Pence <laughs> uh, speaking about them, you know, as though they are some absolute devil that can't have rational interest with respect to Taiwan, for example, that they're just complete monsters and there's no reasonable explanation for this. So, you know, you can't in many ways, given the the U.S. foreign policy record of the last many decades, which, by the way, aided and abetted by this world's reserve currency status, um, you you sort you know, in a sense, you can't blame the Russians and the Chinese uh, for seeking alternative arrangements, to put it mildly. Um, David, I want to get your thoughts. I know you sent me a couple articles from Kitco and everything. Uh, what, what's your take on how fantastical this is or how real this is? Yeah, I, I really liked EJ's uh, point about the duration of how all of this will play out. I think that, um, you know, these things take a lot of time. And I think that, I mean, BRICS itself is pretty new. I think that, you know, they're, they're still like admitting members getting, you know, trade agreements signed. And I think that all of that stuff needs to play out before they, you know, like fully launch a, a currency. And then there's also the question of, you know, is this going to be kind of like in almost a similar way to CBDCs? Is it going to be wholesale or retail? Right. I think that um, it makes, you know, you know from a geo- geopolitical perspective, uh, you know, g- rolling out a, a gold-backed retail currency is just way, way messier than uh, one just for trade settlement. So I think how I'm interpreting it, at least how it's been proposed, is for trade settlement. But I think that, you know, the the largest driver of this is this is the threat to the U.S. dollar, as we've kind of, you know, gone over, is it's domestic. It's not foreign. It's not like... This isn't really an attack. This is a response, I think. And I think that it could happen over 10, 15, 20 years. I mean, I think we could see this rolled out maybe in the, in the 2030s. So I think it's, it might sound like hype now, 
But if we continue on this trajectory, I mean, you know, Biden is talking about basically making Ukraine a forever war. That's really expensive. You know, the, the interest payments on on debt, you know, the basically our monetary and fiscal situation are creating this domestic attack on the dollar rather than, you know, some sort of foreign attack. Yeah, and I think even our friends, but certainly our enemies, and again, you know, we're talking about, we're using the political euphemism, um, you know, the, like countries don't have interests, countries don't have enemies, but nonetheless, the political class uh, has interests and enemies collectively. Let's, let's look at it that way. But if we think of China or Russia, the way Mike Pence does as an enemy, um, you know, they know, they know that we will never, ever, ever get our fiscal house in order. You know, if you look at the, you know, the United States federal government's budget since, let's say, really the 30s, but certainly the 60s, the great entitlement uh, era of LBJ, I mean, the spending has increased so rapidly and without regard to tax revenue because of our ability to paper over deficits using treasuries, which are held the world over as, as, as virtually, a, you know, a, a a kissing cousin of the dollar itself. I mean, holding a treasury is really only one tiny step removed from holding a, a physical dollar, um, at least in terms of the world's view of treasuries. Uh, the, the world knows we will never get our fiscal house in order. We will continue to spend, 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 regardless of uh, tax revenues. And we will, our, our members of Congress will continue to consider it our job to police the world. They, they're still locked into this idea that there is a unipolar arrangement now since the fall of the Soviet Union and the, and the United States is the unrivaled king, uh, you know, set to, to basically run the world and, and act as a beacon of freedom. And of course, the BRICS arrangement or the BRICS proposal, to the extent it's happening, is, is a recognition, actually, that we're moving into a multipolar world and that there are regional interests uh, that no longer align with the United States. Now, David, you bring up this idea of a trade settlement currency. And that's, look, that's very, very different. If you created a currency that had gold backing to some extent and just used it between certain member nations of the new BRICS currency and, and only to settle between them, that's very different than what we think of as a gold-backed currency in the classical gold standard sense of things where an, even an individual could literally uh, exchange paper currency for gold in return. Um, now, sometimes that was at a fixed exchange rate, which caused a lot of problems. You know, we don't need a price fixing scheme. We need that to, to float independently in a, you know, in, in a free market setting. But nonetheless, you know, there was a, a brilliant period in, in the history of the West where Paper money was was physically redeemable in gold, but not coincidentally, that was also an era of huge technological progress, material and economic progress, and really a golden era. Uh, the, the later part of the 1800s into the early 1900s. I don't, I, in my opinion, anyway, that is not at all a coincidence. But when we say a gold-backed currency, and when we read some of the hype on Twitter, um, that's what most of us think of. But when we look at this proposal a little more closely. Uh, the idea of a trade settlement currency, where it's really the redeemability in gold is only uh, between the central banks themselves of the various BRICS currency members. And that's 
that's a very different matter. Uh, I mentioned earlier this article at goldmoney.com by Alistair McLeod, McLeod called The Bell Tolls for Fiat. It's dated July 12th, just a couple days ago. He was going to join us. Unfortunately, he was traveling today. But it's, it's really a brilliant article in that I don't agree that this is happening in the, in the way Alistair does. But nonetheless, the way he lays out the mechanical possibility, how this might unfold as a trade currency is really interesting. And I, I recommend the article to you. Um, EJ, this idea of, of the mechanics, there are questions as to how this might, you know, what percentage of gold would be required? Um, what, what would be the issuing entity? Would the members actually have to turn over some of their gold from their central bank to be housed by the issuing entity? Or would they just, you know, have a, you know, keep that within their physical, uh, the physical confines of their own central banks or treasury vaults and, and you know, and, and uh, basically pledge it as, as a percentage backing to the new currency. I mean, these are all very, very fraught, I think, mechanical questions. And moreover, while we might in the West say, you know, uh, Russia and India, Russia and China, excuse me, ha have, a, a, you know, a vested interest in unseating the U.S. dollar, be between themselves, they may have very different uh, geopolitical interests and might not be so eager to trust one another and just turn over physical gold to a new issuing entity. All, all really good questions, Jeff. You know, for the mechanics of this, though, there's a surprising amount uh, of flexibility. And I think part of that um, is, is explained by a story of a depositor in New York City in the 1907 panic. And uh, he was worried that his bank did not have enough gold to actually be able to uh, uh, redeem his notes in, in specie. In other words, that he could take his bank notes, uh, the, the precursor to the Federal Reserve notes, and that he could not actually turn those bank notes in and get physical gold. So even after uh, J.P. Uh, Morgan and Company had essentially announced a, a rescue of this man's financial institution. He was still worried, so he went and got about $2,000 worth, which back then was a lot, right? Today it's only about an ounce of gold, but that back then it was many ounces, uh, and, and tried to withdraw 2,000 ounces of gold. And as soon as the teller put all of the, the physical gold coins on the, the, the window ledge for him, he didn't want it. Why? Because he just wanted to know it was there. And uh, essentially, it's so much easier to transact with, you know, with paper, for example, or, or just digitally with ones and zeros, um, that you don't want to actually have to, to lug gold around. So the value of the currency is not the fact that it physically handicaps you by making you move around bits of, of precious metal. It's that it provides a breaking power to government's ability to simply inflate away the currency in order to pay for unfunded government spending. So, all right, with that in mind, mechanically, how, how do we make something like this work? Well, uh, countries' currencies today already have floating exchange rates with gold. So countries can simply just begin buying gold at whatever the exchange rate happens to be for, for their given currency. And then they will then use that gold to issue a currency against that gold. In other words, let's say I have uh, 100 ounces of gold and I want to, to set a price of this, this new currency, we'll call it the new dollar, uh, at one new dollar equals one ounce of gold. I can now hand out 100 
of these new notes, uh, this new currency, this new dollar to different people and say, you now have a claim against this uh, ounce of gold that I will you know, basically just keep here for safekeeping. And you know, maybe we can give some, uh, some limited circumstances under which you can actually withdraw that gold, whatever the case may be. We would do that mostly just to reduce uh, transactions, transaction costs as opposed to saying, you know, no, you can't get your gold because I've secretly lent it out to other people, right? That's a fractional reserve banking system. So, with again, with that in mind, you now will have multiple countries, in this case, uh, the, the, the pseudo-alliance of BRICS, you have multiple countries now who have all issued the same new currency with the same amount of gold backing. And so it's very easy for each of those countries to keep the gold in their own vaults and not have to move it around at all. And and this is remarkably similar to to what we saw under uh, under Bretton Woods, but even before Bretton Woods, um, the the uh, pound exchange standard that we had in the late 1920s, and even before that, the full blown uh, gold standard. So uh, the notes themselves simply tell you that this is gold and it can't be inflated away which again is is the real value of it and and again going back to uh to bitcoin bitcoin represents that same kind of promise you know bitcoin doesn't have uh the advantage of gold where it it is um it has inherent value right you can't use a bitcoin for example in industry for jewelry whatever the case may be um but it has the exact same property of gold where a government can't simply just at will create it and devalue the assets that you already have. Again, in terms of the actual mechanics, though, you, you could conceivably be in a situation where you know these countries don't trust each other. And that's actually OK, too, because if they don't trust each other, then what you can do is simply just say, OK, in international trade or whatever, um, I actually am going to give you this new currency and I want the gold for it. And, you know, that threat, much like in the, the uh, gold standard or even the gold exchange standard, uh, that threat also provides a limit as to how much of this currency uh, countries can issue without being called on the carpet. And, and frankly, getting caught with their pants down and having to admit, uh-oh, we don't actually have enough gold on hand here. It, it is the threat, if you will, uh, that makes this all viable. Well, I think it's worth noting, uh, devil's advocate, there's a Bitcoiner critique of all this, of course, of gold in general, but, it, but a gold currency as well. And, and that is first and foremost, uh, that gold is big and heavy and cumbersome and expensive to maintain and guard in a vault, expensive to assay for, for purity, and very expensive to ship and move about uh, for settlement purposes. And uh, whereas Bitcoin, you know, with, with, you can press a button and, and basically instantaneously um, send sats. Uh, but, you know, I think the digital world solves a lot of this. The digital world says we don't really need to move physical gold around. And if you read Alistair McLeod's proposal or idea, uh, the member nations wouldn't even move the gold, their physical gold from their central bank vaults into, you know, some kind of centralized holding something, they, they would again simply get a credit for it and pledge it. Um, but of course, possession is nine tenths of the law, as they say. So that would that would indicate that, let's say, the Chinese, or the Russians, they were willing to engage in this new 
currency, but they weren't 100% sold on it, and they'd like to keep their gold uh, under their own control. Thank you very much. And, you know, the additional Bitcoiner critic, it, uh, critique is that it, since gold's big and slow and heavy and cumbersome and expensive to move, it sits there. Of, of course, you know, you want to issue paper certificates for that, which are a lot easier to go out and, and trade with in the real world. But over time, that, that opened up uh, the former gold standard and, and basically uh, converted it into something that central banks controlled and ultimately national governments con controlled. And then the, the paper became the thing unto itself instead of the, you know, the, the representing redeemable in the thing, the paper became the thing. Uh, so that's, you know, th these are these are critiques that Bitcoiners make. But nonetheless, uh, when we look at this proposal, we do know, uh, to be fair to Mr. McLeod, that uh, particularly the Russian, Chinese, Indian central banks have been on gold buying sprees. Uh, over the past many, uh, many years, even before COVID, but it's accelerated since, since COVID. Now, the United States and some of the European countries are still well ahead of, of them in terms of physical gold holding, or so we're told. It's very hard to know that for a fact, but so, so we're told. We know that the United States probably has the most. Um, so Thorsten, Dr. Pollitt, Thorsten Pollitt is informing me he's, he's having issues with his phone internet he's in a hotel in switzerland uh but if you'll bear with me he asked if i would read something so uh, just uh, consider this in his um german accent for us uh because i i, I had specifically invited him because i'd seen him interviewed uh, a couple times i believe in the european press just over the past couple weeks on this issue so here's here's dr paul he says says, how might the BRICS manage to swim away from the U.S. dollar? No details are available yet about how the currency might be structured, but it shouldn't stop us from speculating about what lies ahead. And here's his idea. The BRICS could establish a new bank, the BRICS Bank, funded by gold deposits from BRICS, from BRICS central banks. The physically deposited gold holdings would be shown on the asset side of the BRICS Bank's balance sheet, the, the individual balance sheet. Of these of these member countries and could be denominated, for example, BRICS gold, where one brick BRICS gold represents one gram of physical gold. So this would actually bolster the asset side um, of of the balance sheet of these countries. He continues here: the BRICS bank can then grant loans denominated in BRICS gold, for example, to exporters from BRICS countries and or to importers of goods from abroad. And it could also accept further gold deposits from international investors who can hold interest-bearing BRICS gold deposits this way. So here, Dr. Pollitt's getting us a little away from just the pure governmental trade currency and actually bringing uh, private parties into it. So that's interesting. I hadn't heard that explained. Uh, BRICS gold could henceforth be used by the BRICS countries as international money, as an international unit of account in global trade and financial transactions. Incidentally, the new de facto gold currency would not even have to be physically minted but could be and remain on accounting only unit and excuse me an accounting only unit while being redeemable on demand. So I guess what Dr. Pollitt is, Pollitt is saying here is that you, know, you don't have to you know you can simply use the the digital accounting unless and until a resumption demand is made and I think that probably makes sense. However, the transition, the use of BRICS gold as an international trade and transaction currency would most likely have far-reaching consequences. One, again, I'm speaking for Dr. Pollitt, it would presumably lead to a sharp increase in the demand for gold compared to current levels. 
you can hear the gold bug salivating. Oh my gosh, $5,000 gold. Uh, with not only gold prices measured in US dollars, euros, et cetera, but also in the currencies of the BRICS countries increasingly, increasing substantially. So there's, there's a, an upshot for the BRICS. Two, such an increase in the gold price would devalue the purchasing power of the official currencies, not only the US dollar, but also the BRICS currencies against the yellow metal. Also, the prices of goods in terms of the official fiat currencies would also most likely skyrocket, debasing the purchasing power of presumably all existing fiat currencies. So even the, so what he's saying here is even the fiat currencies of these new uh, BRIC, BRICS member countries would be affected, which of course makes sense. I mean, there's no reason for them to be exempted. So again, another weird geopolitical reality where it's in their interest in maybe the long run, but it's kind of painful in terms of their short-term interests. And that's, it's like a game of musical chairs again. Uh, number three from Dr. Pollitt, the BRICS countries would build up gold reserves to the extent that they run or will run trade surpluses. Well, we know China certainly does that. They would presumably be the winners of the currency switch while the countries with trade deficits, first and foremost, the U.S. would lose out. And another reason for the Mike Pence's of the world uh, to maybe even lash out militarily against something like this. By the way, the BRICS gold reserves amounted to 5,452.7 tons in the first quarter of 2023, market value around $350 billion U.S. dollars. So that's, that's not a lot, folks. It, the, the rough uh, U.S. dollar value of all physical gold in existence today, which is almost all uh, physical gold ever, ever uh, mined and refined, by the way, Gold never really goes away. It's about $13 trillion. So, um, you know, $350 billion U.S. dollars against that broader market of $13 trillion isn't all that much, but it's enough to stake a currency, I would imagine. It, you know, not on a full 100% full basis, but on a percentage basis. Uh, continuing in Dr. Pollitt, these few considerations already show how disrupting the topic of creating a new gold-backed international trading currency could be. The BRICS could well trigger landslide-like changes in the global economic and financial structure. So those are uh, comments from Dr. Pollitt, who is, you know, a cautious guy and no bomb thrower. So that's that's very, very interesting. And, you know, I don't, I don't know if you, you saw, but Janet Yellen was was uh, in China recently, was asked about this by a reporter. And she kind of said, oh, you know, don't worry about it. I, you know, we're confident the U.S. dollar is going to continue to be uh, the major player. And she's probably right. I, uh, you know, I mean, a lot of people like me uh, who think like me, uh, we're, we're, you know, spelling, uh, we're claiming doom for the U.S. dollar back in, in 1971. And that that uh, really didn't happen. So, you know, you put all this together and you really see that this this is an idea, I, I think, whose time has come in that the U.S. dollar uh, both as a tool of profligacy here at home and a, a tool of empire, a bludgeon abroad, uh, not only in terms of our own uh, you know, far-flung military empire, which we generally fund with deficits, but also in terms of all the, the money we use as carrots and sticks to bribe other countries to do our bidding, to give them all kinds of weapons. Look what we're doing with Ukraine right now. So it's, it's definitely a, an idea whose time has come. Uh, the question is whether it, it could actually be implemented. And uh, Dr. Pollitt, I think, brings up some, some pretty interesting questions. So 
even if this is not at hand, the idea that, you know, the ball could get rolling today for something that, that takes place 20 or 30 years hence um, is, is certainly not that incredible. I mean, in the early 1980s, if you had gone around saying, oh, you know, the, the, the Soviet Union is about to collapse and it's going to be, you know, just just a unipolar Uncle Sam driven world, people would have to- absolutely thought you were crazy. So, you know, sometimes nothing happens, you know, until it does. But uh, we had Daniel with us earlier. I think Daniel had to fly. But let me let me go back to David Wall. You know, how about the geopolitics? And I, I'm not going to say I'm not going to beat up on Mike Pence anymore. I got, I got that out of my system. I'm feeling better. Um, you know what? What are the realities apart from the mechanics of whether Uncle Sam would stand by and all of a sudden see, for example, Iranian oil priced in uh, in a BRICS currency? Uh, presumably, we would have a response. Yeah, and I think that it's it's interesting seeing the uh, Ukraine uh, conflict play out in like American politics because it definitely hasn't garnered the same immediate support that you know something like the Iraq War did. It kind of like the uh, the the propaganda push really fell flat um, to some extent. I mean, you know, you still in, in in certain areas, you know, you drive around and you see Ukraine flags everywhere. Um, but I think that the appetite for uh, escalating conflicts abroad has really declined in the United States. And I think that another thing that's interesting is as as this continues to play out, I think politically you could almost see uh, camps emerge around uh, basically dollar dollar supremacists and then kind of, uh, you know, sound people that want sound money, uh, whether it's, you know, Bitcoin or, or gold. And I think that'll be really interesting to see politically, because I think that over uh, historically, the, the demand for a sound money hasn't really come from top down, it's come from bottom up. And that's why I think this, um, this whole uh, BRICS discussion is very interesting because I think that it, it, it does seem really odd that, uh, you know, top-down leaders would, would impose something um, for retail that resembles a, a sound money. So I think that ultimately the, the desire to do that, it, it, it doesn't make sense from my perspective. But in terms, back to geopolitics, I think that it will be interesting to see how the, the market where I would look for this is energy trade. I think that as energy, if energy moves, continues to move away settlement for, for oil, basically in dollars, then I think something like this makes more sense. It continues to harm, you know, people who, who like dollar, basically dollar supremacy. And it, I think it, I think there will be people that will call for escalation, but what's unknown is how it, you know, how much power they'll have. Yeah, that's actually a great point about the bottom up versus top down. I mean, this again, when we talk about whether the U.S. would allow this or whether the U.S. would oppose it, we're talking about the political class. We're not talking about us. Right. Um, And 
and I think you're correct. It, you know, gold bugs, for God's sake, have always been very bottom up. I mean, not, you know, not uh, always the most sophisticated people financially, not the wealthiest. You know, there's I mean, there are certainly wealthy people certainly hold gold. Um, as a matter of fact, they hold a lot more than they let on, even as they are very dismissive of gold bugs. But nonetheless, you know, adjacent to the political class is the banking class. And the banking class has always benefited enormously from leverage, from, you know, the dollar status, uh, from arbitrage, a million different ways that one can play against, uh, you know, that a, that a sound currency would eliminate. In other words, there's all kinds of uh, financial incentives for the banking class to sort of keep the U.S. dollar system and, and the, uh, you know, the, the ultra leveraged many multiples credit thing going forever and ever because the, the you know, the wealthiest elites in the U.S. Have, have all benefited from that. I mean, if you look at even even people who are not just financially engineering things, even people who have you know created you know actual productive companies that make our lives better, that produce a really valued good and service. And I, I would let's say Jeff Bezos. I mean, to me, Amazon is an absolute wonder and a miracle. Washington Post, not so much, but okay, he's got to have a hobby. Um, you know, e even there, you know, what's the share price of Amazon? How juiced is that by monetary and fiscal policy versus the actual productivity of the company? Right. That's always a question. And economists are supposed to help us see the unseen. OK, we know a share of Amazon costs X. Oh, great. Wow. Blue chip. But what would a share of Amazon be absent all the fiscal monetary machinations? Not to mention the COVID shutdowns, by the way, political machination of the last few years. We don't really know. It's very hard to say because we don't have a sound money yardstick to weigh it against. All we know is number go up. And if it go up faster than other numbers, you know, that's a good investment. And so our, our dollar policy uh, of our express policy of inflation, inflationism as a goal of the Federal Reserve has pushed people into the stock markets to chase yield. And what has that meant for Amazon stock, for example, and Jeff Bezos's personal fortune as a result. It's very hard to say, but we, I think we could, those of us who are critics of central banking per se, not just as practice, could, would have a colorable argument that Jeff Bezos's net worth is probably juiced above and beyond the value he's created for society. And remember, Amazon doesn't really make money. It's cloud services, which unfortunately sells to spooky government agencies, makes money, but it's day-to-day -day delivery um, it does not. You know, when you get that toilet paper sent to your house overnight, you say, oh, my gosh, this is so great. Well, part of the reason it's so great is because it's losing money. Um, so that, that to me is a, is a very interesting point, this bottom up versus top down. You know, people, Bitcoiners and gold bugs, you know, it's in our interest to have a sound currency so we don't have to go out and twist ourselves into pretzels chasing yield in financial markets, which we don't really understand ably or capably as individuals, much less going up against algorithmic traders. I mean, it's just most people lose their shirts in the stock market. That's just a fact. Well, maybe not lose their shirts. Most people lose money if they go out and try to actively pick stocks as opposed to, you know, an index fund with Vanguard or something. I, I think that is something we could say. And I would argue that a big part of that is the fact that we, we have this unstable currency, which people have to go out and juice uh, for leverage or for yields. Um, and, and that's been a, a very harmful thing to the United States, not, not a, 
a good thing. So when we see a BlackRock creating an ETF for Bitcoin, that starts to make you worry uh, that the, the, the Bitcoin enthusiasm has been um, hacked into by some bad actors. Uh, but not, nonetheless, I think uh, Bitcoin and Bitcoiners and gold bugs can agree on the fundamental problem and the fundamental um, solution. And we can hardly blame the BRICS countries for floating this and for trying to rattle U.S. Um, hegemony. Uh, why, why wouldn't they? Why should they just put up with this, with Uncle Sam's uh, dominance forever and ever? So that said, EJ, I want to get back to you on I, I want to uh, ask you to weigh in on Hype versus reality. Is, is this something that's that's far off, if ever, or is this real? Oh, it, it's certainly real. I mean, like we've already seen examples uh, just in the last couple of months where countries have have are, you know they are actively taking steps to de-dollarize. Uh, so that part of it is real. In, in terms of the collapses is, is imminent, that part of it is, is the hype. Right. We don't know where the point of no return is. At some point, you do get close enough to the falls that your momen momentum is just going to take you over. That That's when you're basically uh, in the panic stage. Uh, but until then, tulipomania is real. Right. I mean, th this idea that that somehow uh, uh, this can't be happening because it's irrational. Hey, the market can stay irrational longer than you can stay solvent, as a man once said. So yeah. I, I don't I don't have I don't have any doubt that we are moving um, in the direction of de-dollarization. Almost almost all uh, not just indicators are, are looking that way. But also, if you look at what we are doing as a nation, both at home and abroad, it is pushing other countries to de-dollarize. And, and there are viable alternatives today. You have not just gold, but you have Bitcoin. So you have things that are uh, uh, decentralized. Uh, you have things that are universal and can function as money. And so when you have those kinds of advantages versus something that is, is highly manipulatable and has been highly manipulated, such as the dollar, uh, it's no wonder that people are, are moving, I think, in that direction, which is away from the dollar and two alternatives. Again, things like things like Bitcoin, things like gold. Um, it, in terms of speed, you know, it may sound like a cop out, and I apologize to the listeners if that's how they take it, but it, it's not. Uh, we just don't know the speed. We don't know how fast we are uh, approaching that change, and and I think it's foolish for us to try to guess. But what we do know is that we are moving in the wrong direction if we want to try to keep the dollar as our reserve currency. Um, one one thing I'd, I'd like to say, if you don't mind, regarding uh, as we if, if we get a, a, an alternative currency that is backed by gold, let's say that absolutely is going to increase demand for gold. I agree with that 100 percent. Right. One of the reasons why uh, gold prices never shot up. Um, as much as anticipated when Nixon closed the gold window, although they did rise, just not as much as anticipated, was that there was a tremendous amount of gold that was being used strictly for monetary purposes. And it was no longer needed for that. So it was available for industry. Um, and, and as a consequence of that, you actually decrease some of the demand for gold and paradoxically uh, 
kept the price uh, lower than it otherwise would have been. And you would see the reverse of that if we moved back to gold for, for monetary purposes. But one thing I, I don't agree on is this idea that that somehow uh, other currencies, let's not talk about the dollar because you have the reserve currency issue, um, which would you'd obviously see less of demand there for dollars. Um, but if you take another random currency that's not a reserve currency around the world and you switch to gold, would that currency inherently become less valuable? Not necessarily. Would would the price of gold in that currency go up? Yes, but that's because demand for gold is going up. But would the would the price of bread in that currency, for example, rise? No, not necessarily, because if the uh, if the demand and supply for that individual currency hasn't changed, then you wouldn't expect to see the monetary phenomenon of inflation in that currency. I, I hope that wasn't too much of a tangent there. Not at all. David, real or hype? I, I think hmm, I would say that demand for sound money, real. Uh, whether it comes in the form of bricks, I would actually say, you know, I, I mean, it, it would seem, it, it would almost seem ludicrous for these countries to come out and make all of these statements and meet and, and set up their, their own, you know, basically alternative G7 and, and for that to just totally fall flat. So I think, I think that's ultimately real. I don't know how long it will take. Uh, one, one additional factor that I think is interesting going back to the, the bottom up point is that if you look at back at the seventies, people in America weren't even able to buy gold until physical gold until 1975. And now we have uh, regular Americans can buy physical gold and real Bitcoin. I know that like you said, BlackRock is trying to to make a, a Bitcoin TM, right? And kind of do the classic Wall Street uh, uh, repackaging of something. But I think that that'll be interesting to, to observe as well. Thanks, David. Well, we'll wrap this up. I, I would comment that you know, gold and Bitcoin are not the only options. Uh, watch what humans do, not what they say. There's a lot of worry out there about the US dollar and inflation even here at home. And so there are lots of things people put their money into uh, apart from let's say stock markets or bonds, which have been just miserable this year. Uh, the stock market's been great, but uh, you know, physical land, uh, commodities, there's all kinds of ways to buy commodities, uh, you know, futures, ETFs, et cetera, uh, all kinds of stuff. I mean, people might put money into prepping People might put money into uh, trying to produce some uh, vegetables in, in their home. People might put money into firearms or, or canned food. There's all kinds of ways that people try to buy real stuff with depreciating dollars. And if, if you go read When Money Dies uh, by Adam Ferguson about the uh, hyperinflation in Weimar era uh, Austria, you will see just how quickly people exchange paper for stuff. And that could be anything. Again, not just gold or Bitcoin. It could be anything. I mean, people were, um, you know, selling 
musical instruments. People were selling clothing. You know, it was really, it's really a grim book. And the idea that it, it, it can't happen here, I think, is false. It could happen here. Um, I'm going to have to put myself in the hype camp. I'm not as sold on de-dollarization. I would per personally subscribe more to Brent Johnson's dollar milkshake theory. That's a whole nother show. Maybe we'll have him on sometime. But if you go look that up, uh, I think a lot of what's going to happen, at least in the near term, is probably actually strengthens the dollar because everybody else has been been worse. And when it comes to uh, creating a gold-backed currency, regardless of the percentage of backing, you know that takes real discipline. You you have to purchase more and more gold, and you have to exchange, you know, whatever you have to exchange for that, and then that gold is sitting there. You're not building um, skyscrapers or paying entitlements or doing other things that might make your citizenry happy. Uh, and it takes real discipline to have any redemption. It, it means you have to um, not spend nearly as much as most governments would like to spend. If you look at it, it particularly the Chinese central bank uh, over the past you know, 20 years, let's say, uh, it, it, it's really been worse even than our own central bank. So um, I'm going to I'm going to put this down as hype, but I, I certainly uh, look forward to continuing to read people like Alistair McLeod, Jim Rickards on this, and I think we'll all be watching uh, what happens in Johannesburg in August to see if there's anything more about this or whether it fizzles out as a news story. And uh, we'll certainly be watching our own government's response to all this. So thanks everybody. Our hour is up. Uh, every Friday at 2, 2 o'clock p.m. Eastern, Monetary Metals, I host a Twitter space on money and monetary policy issues. So you know, set it on your calendar and join us on Fridays. I want to thank EJ so much. I want to thank David so much. I want to thank Thorsten so much. I'm sorry about his troubles with his throne, but he promises to come back on another space. So everybody have a, just a fantastic weekend. We'll talk to you soon. Bye now.